0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: When you type your name into a search engine, what comes up first? Is it you or someone else who's got the same name? What if you did that and the person who came up, your namesake, somehow changed your life, inspired you, motivated you to do something you'd otherwise never have imagined. On Sporty, we're going to meet someone who's taken to long distance cycling because of what she discovered when she did a search on her name. Hello, Amanda Smith with you. And before that, cycling and a conspiracy theory. Everybody loves a good conspiracy theory. The moon landing was fake. JFK was killed by the CIA or the KGB or the mafia. It's all about secret vested interests and being suspicious and distrustful of authority. Now, a recent incident has got psychologist Dr. Matthew Marquez thinking about conspiracy theories in sport. Matthew, tell us about what happened to the UK champion cyclist Chris Froome that's prompted suggestions of a conspiracy.
2: So in a race leading up to the Tour de France, the Criterium de Dauphiné, Chris Froome was looking over the course and was involved in a high-speed crash down a hill. He ended up with compound fractures, broken ribs, uh, broken vertebrae, a uh, broken collarbone, really severe injuries. And so there was a concern because there was a delay in, in the reporting and also there wasn't any footage um, that something wasn't right.
1: And the point, of course, is that because of those injuries, he's been unable
2: to compete in the Tour de France. France. That's right. So he was really touted as a favourite leading in and Perhaps there was some cover-up that it wasn't what it seemed.
1: Well, the explanation given was that he'd taken his hands off the handlebars of his bike to blow his nose and a gust of wind at the same time meant he crashed. Is that just so kind of mundane that it seems like an unsatisfactory explanation?
2: Anyone who rides a bike knows that you can get blown around by a gust of wind, But certainly, you know, someone so experienced and so professional as Chris Froome, it does seem a little bit unbelievable that, you know, such a really ordinary incident like blowing your nose would lead to, you know, a devastating effect for him. So for some people, it really led to this kind of narrative that it was to prevent him from competing or or to avoid a particular sanction or to avoid drug testing or perhaps as a an alternate way not to race him in the Tour de France because his form was on the decline... Yeah, so
1: according to those who who don't accept the given explanation, who's behind this
2: then? So that's where it gets interesting. Uh, there are explanations from number patterns and the Illuminati to conspiracy by the team and involvement from other riders or it involved the cycling international body, the UCI. And so a lot of these bear the hallmarks of classic conspiracy theories. Uh, and really, I guess the key part is that there's no evidence to the contrary and, and really, we live in a very media-rich world, you know, lots of people on social media and they're getting access to video and all these sorts of things. And, and because this happened prior to the start of the stage and there was no footage of it, it really does fuel that alternate narrative that something else is going on.
1: Well, uh, conspiracy theories in sport do often centre around, well, like with Chris Froome, uh, a likely winner apparently being stopped from competing or a very unexpected win that looks like a fix. Um, And given that there has been and is match-fixing in sport, that means it's kind of ripe territory, I'd have thought, Uh, not to mention some of the more bizarre things that have truly happened to stop someone competing. And I'm thinking, for example, when the American ice skater Nancy Kerrigan was whacked on the knee by uh, associates of her great rival Tonya Harding back in the 1990s. I mean, you know, you couldn't make it up, really. What are, what are some other significant sporting
2: conspiracies, though, Matthew? What are, what are some of your favourites? For example, in basketball, when the great Michael Jordan retired, there was a suggestion that it was a secret retirement as a penalty that he was serving out a suspension for his gambling. Uh, the All Blacks in 1995, their their unexpected loss to the Springboks, sort of in this post-apartheid era. Really, mm, yes, in South Africa at the World Cup. Yes, that was quite shocking that uh, they were performing quite well and then the next day they were taken ill and so there were suggestions that there was some sort of poisoning, something that's still believed by quite a lot of New Zealanders to this day uh, that the All Blacks were poisoned prior to their 1995 World Cup. So there, there are those ones. Um, certainly, you point out that, you know, there's match fixing and those sorts of things. And certainly, at least in cycling, there have been conspiracy theories that have turned out to be fact. For example, the whole doping ring with Lance Armstrong and the US postal team. You know, who would believe that a bus was pulling over to the side of the road to fix a flat tyre? But in reality, in the bus, people were doping. So some of them turn out to be true. Some of them really sort of still remain a mystery and, and probably feed the collective interests.
1: Well, a couple of old Australian sporting conspiracies that I like are about, they're both about um, how the Yanks poisoned us. So back in 1917, the champion boxer, Australian boxer Les Darcy was in the US and about to fight a match and he suddenly and unexpectedly died. Uh, In Australia, they thought he'd been poisoned ahead of the fight. And, well, it was poisoning, but it was septicemia that was caused by um, uh, dental work that he'd had. It wasn't deliberate. And then uh, if we go to the 1930s, a similar kind of story happens with Farlap, the great racehorse, also competing in America, where he also suddenly and mysteriously died apparently again by mm-hmm. being poisoned uh, deliberately poisoned with arsenic and it was really only uh, almost 70 years later i think that it was established that farlap had most probably died of an acute bout of gastro, um, but I think that what each of those speaks to is the idea of the talented Aussie battler, man or beast, um, <laughs> who can make it big in the big time in America, and and who was who therefore had to be stopped by, by that power. You know, the idea that we was robbed kind of holds more sway than the disappointment of less nefarious tragedies,
2: I suppose. Yeah, I think so. And you raise some very good points in terms of the reasons why people might believe in conspiracy theories. One of those is a social motive or a social need to feel belonging to an in-group, especially people who perceive themselves as up against uh, larger entities or the underdog. So these stories often involve, you know, uh, powerful, large actors conspiring against, in some ways, the little person. I mean, we're all trying to make sense of these large, catastrophic events. You know, we'd rather believe that things are orderly than, put them down to some sort of random event, you know, gastroenteritis. Ordinary chaos. Ordinary chaos, gastroenteritis to fall one of the great Australian racehorses. I guess such a... Well, again, mundane, isn't it? Yes, yes. So when the four-time Tour de France winner crashes... Before the race, it's not filmed. Well, it couldn't have just been he was blowing his nose. There was a particular reason he crashed. So there was some sort of malevolent reason to pull him out of that race and not have him compete in the Tour de France. So the theory goes.
1: And Dr Matthew Marquez lectures in social psychology at La Trobe University and he is himself a keen cyclist. This is Sporty with Amanda Smith. We've all done it. In an idle moment, you type your name into a search engine to see what comes up. Sarah Maddock, tell us about what happened when you Googled yourself.
0: So it was in the early 2000s when Google was new and I didn't quite know how to use it. So I thought I'd find out what the internet knew about myself. And I typed in my own name and up popped an entry about a Sarah Maddock from the 1890s. So not you, some historic figure. Yes, exactly right. And when I clicked on the link, it turned out that Sarah Maddock had been a trendsetter and she happened to be the first female cyclist to cycle from Sydney to Melbourne. And when was that? She did that in 1894.
1: And do you also happen to be a cyclist, Sarah?
0: I wasn't at the time. I've always been a recreational cyclist, so I'd cycle a couple of kilometres to work or to the shops. But uh, as soon as I saw that entry, it planted a seed that, wow, that would be amazing to one day follow in her footsteps and do this adventure.
1: Yeah. So what are you setting out to do?
0: So my aim is to cycle from Sydney to Melbourne as well to pay homage to Sarah Maddox achievements. It's 125 years this year since she did the ride.
1: Well, in the original Sarah's day, 125 years ago, the roads must have been pretty bad for cycling such a distance. Are you going to take the same route that Sarah took?
0: The road that she took—it was called the South Road at the time, which is the Hume Highway today. So, unfortunately, while well, you can cycle on the Hume Highway, I don't you think it would be want to. that enjoyable. <laughs> exactly. So, we've tried to stay true to some of the sections of it, and we head through the Southern Highlands and through Yass and Goulburn which was similar to Sarah. Then we go inland through Cootamundra and Wagga, back into Albury, which again was similar to Sarah. And then this time we're going along some of the Victorian rail trails, which in some ways reflects that the railway was there when Sarah was doing it, even if she didn't go exactly along those paths. So how long did she take and how long are you planning on taking? (laughs) Sarah took 10 days and I don't believe they actually had a rest day. So they were averaging about 95 kilometres a day. It was around 980 odd kilometres in total between the two cities. We're actually taking 14 days and that is 12 days cycling and two rest days. Yeah, I think Sarah was a very tough woman. How many of you are going to be doing this ride that you're leading? So far, we've got six joining us, and it's open to anyone who would like to come along. We're doing it through a tour company, so it's a fully supported ride with backup vehicles accompanying us along the way.
1: Well, in deciding to do this and in your research, what have you learnt about your
0: namesake, the original Sarah Matic? To begin with, I actually couldn't find a lot on her. I used the Trove website quite a lot and I was searching under Sarah Maddock and nothing was coming up and then it occurred to me that at the time people are referred to under their husband's initials. So as soon as I typed in Mrs E.A. Maddock, thousands of newspaper articles came up. All newspapers across Australia had covered her progress since she was the first woman to undertake this ride. And when she got back, she actually formed the first Sydney Ladies Bicycle Club and she inspired the women of Melbourne to form their own Melbourne Ladies Cycling Club because at the time the men's cycling clubs weren't open to women and she championed a lot to get women into cycling. So she did that through organising outings, through rallies and even writing her own column in the Cycling Gazette where she was giving tips on training, on what to wear, how to ride a bike. Yeah, she did a lot for cycling and the following year, she went on to ride from Sydney to Brisbane, which again, she was the first ever woman to achieve that. Oh, and is that something you think you might do after this one? <laughs> I know. I'm kind of going, oh, what have I started? <laughs> and, and does this mean next year I'm riding Sydney to Brisbane? <laughs> is there
1: any chance that you're related to this historic Sarah Maddock, Sarah?
0: I really had hoped that was the case. I did a lot of research and was actually able to track down some of her living relatives, which are her great-grandkids. And I've since met up with them and we've compared family trees and we do come from a different line of Maddox. But, yeah, regardless, she's been a real inspiration in my life.
1: Now, you mentioned that the original Sarah Maddox wrote a cycling column Are you following her tips for this ride that you're doing 125 years later?
0: Well, what I've found is it's surprising how relevant the information is still today. I've got a couple of the lines from some of her articles that I can share. For example, on hill training, she's said, do not forget park riding is little or no practice. Make a point of riding up all hills except very steep ones, which I think is pretty good advice. Mm -hmm. And this one made me laugh. She said the lunch bag should be arranged as to allow the rider to take out a biscuit without dismounting. And I think that's still very important (laughs) to be able to have a snack and keep on riding. And what about what she wore when she cycled? I presume. Well, what did she wear? She wore a skirt and fitted blouse. She would have also actually worn a corset. On corset, she was interviewed and said they are still important, but it would have been more of a corset that would have been accommodating for exercise, so it wouldn't have been hard boning. It would have been more of elastic, so it had some give in it and then on the skirt it would have been a shortened skirt and can we
1: can we expect to see you in such a, an outfit <laughs>
0: I have considered it, but yeah, I think I'll be wearing lycra bike pants and a fluoro shirt. So yeah, quite different to what she wore.
1: (laughs) So you doing this ride really is very serendipitous, Sarah, in that, you know, if you hadn't Googled your name back in the early 2000s and come up with this extraordinary woman, you wouldn't be doing this trip.
0: No, that's right, by uncovering my namesake. She's really set me on a path of adventure and I've always wondered what would I have done if Sarah Maddock was the first woman to pilot a plane or (laughs) something, where where would I be right now? Uh, Yeah, she's been a real inspiration
1: in my life. And Sarah Maddock leads a cycling group from Sydney to Melbourne, leaving on the 28th of August and following in the tyre tracks of her namesake Sarah Maddock, the first woman to complete this tour on a bicycle 125 years ago. Modern day Sarah, I do wish you all the best.
0: Thank you very much.
1: And Sarah Matic was wondering there what if her namesake had turned out to fly planes rather than ride a bike. Well, we are taking to the air now and without an engine for a spot of competitive gliding. In a glider, apparently, it's gravity that keeps you up rather than down. For sporty, Lynn Gallagher is putting on a parachute to go up there.
3: Check. Close, canopy and brakes,
4: ready, and then away they go.
5: Next, it's my turn.
6: AIF, arse in first, okay, so you can sit down on the glider will go down to the front wheel.
5: I'm at the Benalla Aerodrome and about to climb into a glider for the very first time. AIF, arse in first.
3: Righto, so to release your, your harness, yep. you just turn that big knob and sure. they'll all just fall out. Right? Okay, so you right. have to just turn it clockwise and they'll all just fall out. In
5: this situation, it takes another powered plane to get a glider into the okay. air.
3: In the event of an emergency, which is not going to happen, but just in case, there's a big red handle up there. Yep. You just pull that lever and this canopy will disappear.
5: And this is the sound inside the glider's cockpit of being towed along the ground just before takeoff. A certain height, this happens. Whoa! Okay, that was uh, that was a scary moment. <laughs> I... <laughs> the umbilical cord is yeah. on. <laughs> right, okay, so now we're up here with no engine. Well, we're up here with no engine. <laughs> no engine. And I see another glider there, yes. so we need to know what they're doing. Yes, so there's another glider over there, and there's another one going out on tow. And you're used to this. This is the way you choose to fly. This is the way we choose to fly. As we circle around with the eagles, I'm learning that gliding is full of contradictions. Not only does gravity keep you up rather than down, it's a solo sport that's a team effort. Aelsa McMillan flies a lot competitively. She's the new national record holder for the 100km speedrun. That's where you fly in a triangle for a hundred kilometers without losing more than a thousand meters of height.
3: Yep, so uh, for this record, my friend Matt Gage was
5: my official observer. And Elsa did this at an average speed of 207 kilometers an hour.
3: Um, He checked that the log file was uh, all set up correctly, that the task was entered in there. Um, And then when I landed, he was actually there directly on the landing to take uh, control of the log file immediately after.
5: And how long had that record been standing before you broke it? I think it was early 80s. <laughs> she says with a big smile. <laughs> okay. Now, the other thing is that you're in the women's gliding team. What's that sort of competition about? Um, so the
3: team I've just qualified for is the Australian women's team for the World Championships. It's going to be in Australia, actually, uh, for the first time. And it's going to be up in Tamworth in January 2020. What do you have to
5: do when you get to... when you, So when you get to that...
3: Yeah, so a a general competition day will involve everyone going to the briefing in the morning at around about 10 o'clock. At the briefing we get given a task for the day, which will normally be a course between anywhere between three and five different towns that we have to visit. Uh, and basically the winner for the day, you get to choose when you start um, to pick the best weather and the winner for the day is the fastest person around that course.
5: And I shouldn't be asking this, but have there any been any close moments, any near misses uh, where you've been frightened? And... Um, no, not so
3: much. I think what really sort of frightens you is if someone hasn't seen you. Because a lot of the time we are flying in close company and you sort of rely on um, everyone to be keeping a good look at you, keep the best look you can. And sometimes people just miss something and then the, the second person who's seen you has to take the avoiding action, even if they might have normally had the right of way. But most of the time, no, we just keep a real good lookout and uh, follow the rules of the air and also just stay consistent so everyone knows what to expect.
5: Most gliding clubs started up around 1929. That's when the Geelong Gliding Club, the oldest still-operating gliding club in Australia, began. It now flies out of Backers Marsh, which is where David and Jenny Goldsmith are from. I'm going inside their hangar. David and Jenny, here we are at Backers Marsh. Tell me, um, first of all, perhaps who you are, David?
4: Yes, yes, uh, I'm a uh, gliding instructor with the Geelong Gliding Club, and also I'm the president of the Australian Gliding Museum. And Jenny?
6: Okay, (laughs) yeah, well, I, I am the chief flying instructor of the Geelong Gliding Club, and also a member of the museum.
5: And this is amazing, what are we looking at? A beautiful red, very old, open cockpit glider, I don't think I've ever seen one before.
6: Yeah, a tandem uh, two-seat trainer.
4: It's flyable. It's flyable. We, uh, We can take people for a flight in it. It's owned by the Australian Gliding Museum.
6: It came into the country as a kit from Slingsby in the UK, glider manufacturers, and was built by the gliding club of Western Australia in the early 1950s.
4: An open cockpit experience that is absolutely wonderful. Jenny and I had a flight in it last year where we soared up to 4,500 feet and flew around and it was absolutely majestic. The
5: sport of gliding began in Germany after World War I as a result of the Treaty of Versailles, which banned Germany from the use of powered aircraft. It meant that while the rest of the world was developing planes with engines, the Germans, backed by their government, threw their efforts into gliders and into discovering new ways to draw energy from the atmosphere.
4: As far as the sport of gliding goes, a lot of it is non-competitive. It's achieving certificates which depend on different performances. For instance, the first uh, larger certificate is the Silver Sea, where you have to fly a distance of 50 kilometres.
5: So so is it like gathering Boy Scout badges?
4: To an extent, only only, um, a little bit more sophisticated than, in other words, 500 kilometre flights, 750 kilometre flights, even 1,000 kilometre flights and uh, you can get various certificates as you go through. So that's one side of it, but the other side of the sport is flying in gliding competitions. And in Australia, we have plenty of competitions during the summer months where 40 or 50 glider pilots might gather and fly their their glider, which they'll polish down to the the nth degree and make it shiny to get the better performance, and then they'll all bore off at different times. They have a uh, speed to fly the task. So you're not actually normally racing side by side, you are racing against the clock at the end of the day. And uh, nowadays they've even introduced Grand Prix races where you do start at the same time and get to the destination first. David and Jenny have been gliding
5: since they were teenagers and none of their passion for flying or each other seems to have been
6: diminished over the years. We are so blessed to be up there and see some of the sights we see. Which
5: You're also suggesting it's like mm-hmm. a spiritual experience.
6: Almost is, yes. Have
5: oh, uh, you met the love of your life?
6: I did. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> well, do we
5: really want that, to hear about it? <laughs> Yes, we do really want to hear about it. Of course we do. I
6: was attending Teachers College in Armidale in northern New South Wales. I did my training at the Royal Newcastle Aero Club in the Hunter Valley, 200 miles apart. And then she was called on to do a flight check in a new club, in a different type of aeroplane. Right, so I had to go out to the local flying school in Armidale. The CFI, there, I talked to the The CFI, the Chief Flying Instructor, Um, his name was David Goldsmith. (laughs) Uh, okay, now we're we'll to it. <laughs> anyway, I'll talk to him about uh, hiring one of their aircraft to do this test again for my licence. And he's advised against it because they didn't have anyone. I learnt to fly in a 150, Cessna 152 actually. And he said, we don't have a 150. You know, we're so high above sea level here that 150s don't operate very well. So we have 172s. Which
5: is a slightly bigger craft.
6: Bigger, bigger aircraft. Uh, You know, so he advised against it, but he said, would you like to come out for a drink?
4: (laughs) (coughs) At the time, Jenny at her tender age was already the proud owner of her own glider. Ah, So you knew she was serious? I knew she was serious, and not only that, if a charming young lady comes along and owns her own glider, of course you're going to suggest going out for a quiet drink. Oh, so you fell in love
5: with her
4: glider and not her? I fell in love with them both. (laughs) 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 Yep, literally.
5: It's a lovely story. But for me, back in the air over Benalla, there was the small problem of nausea. I was actually pretty pleased to be down on the ground, even though we did kinda overshoot the runway. And
6: basically, as we turned off there, across the strip. That's because
5: we've got a me. We are safe. We are back down, and woo-hoo! we are here. And you made it. <laughs> okay. It is amazing how much control. And we were doing straight and level by then because yeah. I was a bit nauseous. Yeah. And I was. Then it got nauseous all over again, just watching you. <laughs> <laughs> you
3: know, we were doing that. We're sitting there at yeah. but At one point, I like, heaved it back to the side of 38. So you were like sideways?
5: Yeah, yeah. Well, a couple of times. Yeah, I'm looking straight it's down, you'll degrees. see.
3: Just, whoa! Actually 45 degrees. <laughs>
5: 45 degrees yeah. is, it, it looks serious. 1.4G
3: like when
5: you're doing that. 1.4G, yeah. and you were I only think, at on, 2,000 feet? Yeah. yeah. It looks spectacular yeah. from where I was in it looks spectacular from where i was sitting but i didn't want to watch i would have taken a photo of you but i would have thrown up i think you hear it on there's like la, la. whoa yeah, that's it that's it <laughs> and then the scones arrive
6: oh,
5: well,
1: a <laughs> <laughs> that was your and if you want to give gliding a go there are any number of clubs around the country who'd welcome you not sure if they all have scones for you once you get back down on land. Then Gallagher took to the skies to boldly go where Sporty's never been before. Sporty is broadcast on RN and on Grandstand Digital. It's podcast through the ABC Listen app, as well as any of the other podcast apps. I'm Amanda Smith.